This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I talk to Stephanie Keeney-Parks, who is a doctoral student at UCLA in the Department of Anthropology, where she focuses on medical and linguistic anthropology, specifically on autism. By highlighting the healthcare disparities faced by African-American families that have children with autism, Stephanie looks to identify ways to change the landscape to provide more equitable care. Stephanie's oldest child is diagnosed with autism and she talks about her experience navigating this as a mother and researcher and provides great advice. But before we begin, I want to remind you about my annual mental health conference running in Dallas, Texas, 2nd to the 4th of December. It is going to be amazing. I'm really going to be getting into the practical, nitty-gritty of how to understand what mind management is and how to use mind management to manage mental health, specifically dealing with what is anxiety, what is depression, how can we understand and use this, what does it mean to be a shock absorber and a people pleaser. I have great guests. I have Michelle Williams as one of my guests who's going to be speaking about her experience with depression and we're going to analyze how she used the neurocycle to help her manage her depression. So if you want to come, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to be signing books, meeting all of you. Go to drleafconference.com. There are limited seats available and it's selling out really fast. And I hope to see you there. I'm super excited to see you there. And there are also CMEs and CEUs. So if you need those, you'll be able to get CMEs and CEUs as well. There's a separate registration for that. All the information is at drleafconference.com. And one more thing, this podcast is for educational purposes and and is not medical advice. So if you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And now on to today's podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And today we are going to be talking with Stephanie Keener-Parks. I am so excited to talk about to talk to you, Stephanie, because this is such an important topic we're going to be covering. I'm quickly going to read your bio, which is amazing, just a short version of it. And people can find out more about you in our notes, but in our show notes. But Stephanie Keeney Park's research centers on the everyday lives of black parents who have children with autism. She's also interested in the process of diagnosing a black child with autism, as well as the healthcare disparities that these families face. Stephanie is interested in centering the black parents' narrative and experience as the expert to decenter white ideologies on health, healthcare, disability, and black culture. Her research stems from her experience as a black woman, wife, and mother of two children. Stephanie's oldest child is diagnosed with autism. Welcome, Stephanie. It's, this is such an important discussion, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on my podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a very important discussion. Well, can we start by just asking you to explain your research. What you know, you, that's a quite a big, you know, you're covering a like, super huge topic, and I know you're busy with your doctorate at the moment. So I'd love to hear more about your research. Right. So my master's research, the impetus for it all is really my experience being a mother of a child with autism and kind of navigating all the services that are kind of part and parcel of that through the education system and the medical system, and then how did we 
you know, incorporate that into a family structure of African-Americans who may or may not be kind of amenable to the diagnostic label or the healthcare necessary or the, that my husband and I felt was necessary for our son or, 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 right? Like, how do we kind of make this thing kind of work together? And that's where it stems from. And so in my master's research, I spent time watching clinicians work with families and doing some diagnosing of children. I did not do the diagnosing. I watched other folks do the diagnosing of children with autism, especially Black children with autism. And then I worked with a cohort of 20-some Black families that were all middle and upper middle class to try and understand better like how we kind of think about this topic and what do we think is salient and important to us. And then my dissertation research, again, just builds upon that. Oh, wow. Well, that, that's a broad overview. So let's dive yeah. into some of the details because just in the in you know the little bit of the intro I did on your background, you tackling autism was already one of those subjects that has had so many definitions over the years. I I started practicing like years. I've been in this field thirty eight years, and thirty eight years ago when we were talking about autism, it's changed so much now. And I worked in schools yeah. for autism and that kind of thing, and it's just so different. And I almost feel I don't know you you really in the thick of it. But I almost feel that the way that we define it now is not even, it was better before. There seemed to be more of an open-minded approach to recognizing and understanding the different facets before. And it's become very, it's become very almost siloed. And I could be wrong. I don't know. But that's just my impression. This is, so I'd love to know more from you. What have you found from your research? And then there's the whole issue of, of the black disparity and, and in general in healthcare. So that's a big loaded question. So how how would you like to dive? What would you like to dive in first? What are you most comfortable? It's important to note that I'm an anthropologist, right? So anthropology, we study humans and the human experience like in a super broad way. And so that means for me that when I work with a family, I get to talk about and like participate in their everyday world. What does it look like for a family who's got their autistic kid at swimming lessons today and what is mom talking about while we're sitting in the bleachers watching our kids take lessons, right? And what does it look like when she's trying to transition that child back to the car? Or what are the stories that are happening in their world in their everyday life? And because we pay such nice attention to like people's everyday life worlds, we can get a sense of bigger too, right? There's so much data on what you said, like you explained the major healthcare deficits that Black families face. Like we know we're you know, twice as likely to be missed or undiagnosed, right? Sure. But what does that look like to my family? What did that look like when my son went through it or any other parent's child went through it? And, and that's kind of how the research gets so broad is because we, we center it on the everyday family and then it kind of just proliferates out because that if you have a child with a disability, disability doesn't just happen in the home. It happens at school and at church and at swimming lessons and you know, the grocery store and it's all the time and everywhere. And because so many systems kind of like they just intersect to try to try and care for these children and these families, then you, you get access to a lot of things like the diagnostic process or speech pathology or social skills classes. And then how that also takes place in school spaces as well. And that's why it can sound so broad. Does that help a little bit? Yes, I'm so I'm so glad that anthropology and I, and I love that you explained it. Thank you for stepping in and explaining that because what's so vital here is to recognize it's not just about the individual; it's about the individual in the environment. And we really yes. are in a medical 
sort of medical model, disease model, where everything is about the individual. Meanwhile, the environment's massive. It's huge. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's nature nurture plus the I factor. So, yeah, I'm so glad that the anthropological approach is a vital component. So thank you for explaining that. It's really, really. Yeah, we have to. You can't just isolate. And we've become like that. I don't know if you feel that as well over the last, you know, sort of 30, 40 years. It's become very much about the brain, about the individual, about the physical Whereas you are saying, let's look at the environment because it impacts. It's not about you. It's about you in the environment and it's massive. Yes. And it can be so different, right? Like you can take people of different socioeconomic levels in the same exact environment and have totally different impacts. And I mean, you have to talk about the minutia of a person's experience to try and understand the bigger numbers as well and how they just how. Yeah, you can say a lot of things, right? Like we have all these massive health disparities, but then how do they really function in the everyday world of our families? And then we can maybe start to dismantle some of those, which would be the goal, right? Like we don't just do this work because it's not super fun to just, you know, sit in your books all day and think about health disparities, but it is vital work to make sure that, you know, all families across this nation and across the world for that matter have access to health care they find salient and, and useful for their families, right? And so that's, this is my particular entrance as an autism parent, right? To try and make the world a better space for my child and my daughter while I'm here at her brother's care. You've heard me mention the app Blinkist before, probably a few times by now. Well, have you downloaded it? If not, what are you waiting for? It's truly one of the most amazing and useful apps out there and so good for your mental and brain health. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf, try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. So what you're saying is to make the systemic changes that are required requires looking at the the individual within the, their family and then the impact and then translating that up and into the greater... So it's got to start. So you've got to have that approach and understanding it. Okay, so what have you found in your research? And there's so many areas that we could go into. So, I mean, like, what really got you into researching this topic? Let's start with that. And then let's maybe define the sort of areas, what you've been looking at specifically and what you've actually found and how your research is going to contribute to society. So let's start with what got you into this? So what really happened is, I am a mom of a child with autism and I use his particular language surrounding autism. So when you hear me say he's autistic and I don't use like particular people first language, it's because my child doesn't. And I go with his identification of how he sees his autism. He will literally call it his autism. So just to give you some language context, I came to the work because our family was experiencing 
health disparities and difficulties navigating schools. And we weren't the only family. This is like a really kind of typical experience with an autism, like through socioeconomic, it's like cross-cultural, it's cross, it's cross-class. It's of course, the more education, more money you have, the easier the experience is in this way, but they're still fighting. It just gets more and more difficult, right? As certain things kind of layer on top. Are you a person of color? Are you a woman? Do you have an education? What type of education? How high is your education? You know, where are you located in this country? Are you in this country? Do you have insurance? Right? Like, so all these things started to compound. And I, I'm a mom who's maybe not, you know, I have girlfriends who can do things like they run these fabulous big advocacy organizations, or they can like do the, you know, autism sensory friendly parties for the kids in the neighborhood and whatnot. I'm not that type of mom. I'm a mom who has a skill set at reading. I like to read. I like to do research. I'm pretty good at academia. So this is my particular intervention. And so I just started by talking to parents that I knew. And I also knew that for my family, the translation of my child having autism, like where we were located, my husband was Air Force when my child was diagnosed, when we, where we were located, we were very far from our family, who's from a rural area. And our family doesn't necessarily use the category autism with my son, but it's his very, very best place in the whole world. If he wants to be social and happy and a part of everything, which he's a super social, happy guy. He loves to go home to our bigger family structure, right? But they don't say Dell has autism. And so I started to get interested in like, why was this tension happening? And why were they so good at care for him, right? And starting to answer that question, I went back to school while sitting in a waiting room because that's where my kid was getting services and finished my degree online. And then had more questions and I got myself into a master's degree program. And then I completed a research project with black families that have kids with autism there and continued on to my PhD at UCLA. So, and, and throughout this, like what I keep finding is more questions, which is really problematic. <laughs> That's what research does. Know, it's terrifying. I was like, if I just keep going, I'll answer something. And that is not true. What I can tell you though, is that what, what really scared me was that because I worked with families who were middle and upper middle class, they had all of these kind of classic respectability markers that black families in the U S particularly are taught. Like if you're a two parent married household, if you go on to get your graduate degrees, if you you have money and access to insurance, right? Like you do all these things, you'll be equitable and get access to the American pie. It proved to be not true. And it was unnerving to watch parents work so hard, right? To meet all these kind of markers and still see them suffer in this disparity, right? And that, that for me was just... Unacceptable. I mean, I know, yeah. Yeah. And, and my family's part of it too. Like my story fits that narrative too. Right. Like, and that was really, really hard for me to accept and then leave alone. Right. Like once I knew that was the case, then what was the next step to kind of continue thinking through what's happening to these families and maybe why, right. And how, how can we kind of intervene into that space and, you know, just kind of like, flipping narratives on their head. Like there's always a common narrative that there's kind of cultural mistrust around medicine. And while that's kind of true, it's only 
not true. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like trying to like kind of like make interventions into some of these type of stereotypes that are happening. Like, yeah, I will tell you that my family doesn't do like the autism label very well. They don't like it. They just don't find it useful, but it doesn't mean that they don't see that Dell has a disability or needs supports or how to provide those supports, right? It does mean that we have 400 years of data showing Black families that they have to be protective of ourselves to make sure we survive. And so you know, I mean, there's a like, reason why. It's, yeah. It's, there's much more tension surrounding this than we kind of give space for. There, we need to be much more nuanced with it. So, I mean, like, our, uh, you know. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, is it almost like a fear of the label? with the 400 years of disparity or is it just that the label no. is what is okay what it is the reason me, from the sense that i've gotten from a lot of folks is that it's just unimportant and it feels like almost like a translation right like if i'm translating it means the label is not created for us by us right it's not something that maybe we find important or necessary but we'll engage with that label if we have to do things like Say, like, you, you often label your kid with whatever disability because you need the supports in school. Or you'll need the medical insurance access. And to get access to medical insurance, you have to have a particular label, right? But in the home, do you need that label to make sure that they're loved and cared for and part of your family? You know, it's just a different... And I think we have to give, like, a ton of space for people to engage in different cultures, even when it looks like it's similar, right? So you'd say, yeah, oh, well, we're all American, right? But we're Black American. And that's just enough different that we have to provide space for the ways in which we're experiencing and, and thinking through these processes, right? And especially language, like language is a huge one. <laughs> so I can, yeah. you know, yeah, and that's another thing that came through my research was language, 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 like the way we talk about disability, the ideologies that we think through, like what do these labels mean to these different families or what do they mean to clinicians when they diagnose them, right? Like, so language showed up in a way that I also was unprepared for, really, to be honest at first. And, and then again, during my I've attacked that. <laughs> I love that. Sorry. And I'd love you to dive into that more because language is such a, we know it's such a tool and it's, but language yeah. can destroy and it can build, build at the same time. And so I'm really glad you've raised that. Would you mind just diving into that a little bit oh, more? Absolutely. So, I mean, like language is so fraught. It's so fraught, right? Like, and we think that we're just communicating, but think about like silly things like, oh, in California, they don't call it pop. They call it soda. Right. And people like get into arguments about this. I mean, over pop and soda. So can you imagine like how that must feel for bigger conversations, right? Like terrifying. And language is also tied to processes of racialization here in the U.S. especially. And so, for example, people often identify black language in particular as being slang or ghetto or not appropriate or not academic, etc. But we know from the work of linguistic anthropologists in particular and linguists in general that it's a really complicated, beautiful, rich language source and we need to encounter it as such, right? But if you go into a clinic and watch somebody diagnose autism and they're not kind of with that kind of idea about Black I language, just see it going all wrong. It, yeah, and it's not like it's not like a clinician shows up today and says, I'm going to do something so racist to add to the health disparity, right? Like, that's not the way this works. What's so scary about 
racism in these clinical spaces is that they're literally the most lovely humans that end up doing these things anyways. I've never met a clinician who didn't go into every single appointment I've ever witnessed with a completely open sense of, I want to do the best moral right thing for the family that I'm working with today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I agree with you, Stephanie. Being a clinician myself for 25 years, your objective, and it's so hard to get into that space and it's so hard to be in that space. You definitely, you're there for the reason of help and definitely not. But there's all the implicit biases that we don't even realize that are so ingrained. And that's what, you, that's what you're unveiling with your research. And how like quietly they work, right? Like how very quickly and quietly. So for, I can give you a quick example where child used a rap lyric during an autism diagnosis test. You know, to the clinician, it looked like echolalia and inappropriate behavior. It could look like echolalia, right? Like, like legitimate, that could definitely do that, right? But in Black culture, we even have a linguistic, like a, an academic term for this. It's called conversational sampling, which if you were in my house on Sunday night dinner with Black folks around the table, and my son didn't kind of do that type of thing where he drops a rap lyric in to be funny or a pop lyric into kind of the conversation, it would look culturally atypical, right? So that would look strange, right? So we're dealing with like tiny, tiny tensions. And you know, the clinician, you get this many minutes to make a life altering decision sometimes, right? My heart yeah. is beating in response because it's yeah. so true. That language it's disorder, so that, that that diagnosis gets, you know, that's captured and it's, it's and an it's identity. Done. Yes. And, and that's the thing, right? Like that you can be a fabulous clinician. You can absolutely believe in, in racial equality, right? Like and do everything for that and still, come out with these outcomes that really speak differently and and that's really really frightening right and and it takes a lot of self-reflexivity for clinicians to be like wow you know i'm part of that process and i have to undo that and you know it's, it's i'm so harder. glad i'm so glad you've raised this because i was thinking back to my days of when i was practicing and when even the days at university, I studied at UCT and, and at University of Pretoria in South Africa, and I remember, and this is where I say things have changed, we were not allowed to make a diagnosis in 15 minutes. We had to see the patients for sometimes three sessions. That's three hours. We had to observe them on their own with the family dynamics, speak to the teachers. No diagnosis was made until you had a comprehensive overview of the whole child's narrative and their whole life and context and everything. And that's what's disappeared. That three, four, five, so, and then you'd still work with them in a diagnostic process and still, okay, I think we're going in this direction, but this is the potential, 
diagnosis, potential prognosis, and then you would do a period of experimental therapy to see is this, uh, that's not being done anymore. It's now like, as you well, say, 15 minutes and there's your diagnosis. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it is that quick. There's other clinics I've been in that take literal days and still have the same outcomes because we still can't untie. Language is a huge component of this. Like I had one observation where a black mother kept using black language instead of code switching. And she was with the white clinician and the white clinician, I, I could just tell like was every time like her, the white clinician's body language would change and she'd kind of change her, her positionality and have the mother in back of her instead of like facing her. And, and, and it looked to me like maybe the clinician was unused to this type of language and had some kind of aversion or some ideology about it, that it meant that the mother was less intelligent. And it was just really quite interesting because after the observation, the clinician asked what I thought, and I had written down all these really positive things about the parent. <laughs> I'd written, gosh, she's so, she loves this kid and she's so enamored. Every time this child did something like right during the session, the mom was like so over the moon with it, right? But she was over the moon in a way that looked very stereotypically black, language use, right? And for the clinician, that read as bad parent, right? And I kind of explain, and that's the type of thing we're talking about. Like they're very, it's just very quiet, small ways that these things are happening, but they have massive impacts, right? It's insidious. Absolutely. That's the way I describe it too. It's insidious. It's because we can't, we can't kind of untie it and you can't, like, I can't burst into the room and be like, oh my gosh, this is happening right now, (laughs) you know? I can explain on the flip side, but no. So in, in your research, I mean, I'm so glad we brought this up because it's the, even if this is all we discuss, just to have that concept of language, you've raised such a vitally important point. What are you proposing as a solution? Obviously, it's education-based, but I don't want, you know, what are you finding? Yeah. How do we fix, how do we fix this? Because we have to. I mean, it's not something that can yeah. be left there because it's just, yeah. it's a disaster. It's a disaster right now because we want, and I think collectively, the great majority of us do want equitable access for everybody, right? Like I don't, that that's like out of the box to say the majority of us want this to happen. But how we get there, right? And there's a lot of like reflexivity that needs to happen on the part of clinicians too in medical schools as well and kind of like how we're teaching about the body without the context of the social. And that's really important. That's, I particularly love teaching medical anthropology because I get to teach so much of the social and kind of get to like shake some brains around, right? Like, you know, how healthcare can be perceived and understood across the globe is so different. And we need to make space to like engage with that on its terms and not just center one way of healthcare and one way of being without consideration of everybody else's is engaging in health that's salient to them. And I'm hoping that medical schools are changing their, their social education a little bit. I'm seeing things pop up. Like there's, you know, the, the department for social medicine at UCLA now, right? Our department, there are several students getting MD PhDs. So they're becoming medical doctors, but getting the PhD in anthropology alongside. So actually and it's funded if your if your audience doesn't know it's a way to do medical school funded in the u.s that's so, brilliant uh, oh wow if you do the md phd and in the anthropology social sciences as well that's incredible yeah. 
and yes, that's funded. So funded. that's good to know. Yeah, that's amazing. Just to know and and so useful, right? Like to be able to people to see the other as equitable and worth their own understanding of the world, right? Instead of just saying must be medical, right? Exactly. <laughs> Stephanie, you say this and it makes me realize for years I've trained physicians in mental health and, and mind. And it's always about the coin. I'm not an anthropologist. I am a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist. So I'm looking at the context as well, but in a different way. And I, I absolutely yeah. teach them. You can't just look at the symptom. You have to look at the whole story behind, you know, so it's kind of like it's a different angle, but it's the same concept. It's just looking at the whole yeah. person, the whole environment, the whole, yeah. not just at the symptom in the body. And it's amazing how that's just, you know, it's always shocked me that like doctors don't, they're the first place that people will go to with mind issues or the autistic child. And they, they have the least experience when it comes to understanding the context and their desire, as you, as you said, is to help the patient, but you have to have the education. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, this starts in medical school and it starts in all the, all the helping, all the clinical fields need to have this training as a massive part of curriculum. And those yes, that are and, trained need training, yes. need post, need to, for their continuing professional development, this needs to be a, it should be a core course every year. It should be a core requirement for their CPD points it and things and CEUs. Every single course that they take, it should never be like, oh, I'm in the diversity class now, right? Like it should be part and parcel of everything. How can we make this a part of an anatomy class, right? Like how can we make this all the pieces so that we're making these things more contextual to the lived environment, right? And and it's you're the brightest group of folks I know. Clinicians are brilliant. Like this is definitely doable. Absolutely, <laughs> like, absolutely. Thing, right? It's just a matter yeah. of restructuring, isn't it? Because if you started at that level, but then if you introduce it also on the CPD level for continuing professional development, you yes. could, and then you could have education. Just yeah, I love how you say filtering it into every. You know, how can you make anthropology part of anatomy? Where's the blend, you know? There's the blend. Yeah. Yeah. So is that where you're going with your research? Are you looking at that kind of angle as a solution potentially? I wish I was doing solution research. I'm not. I'm still working with families. Because of COVID, we watched an entire movement take place with Black families that have children with disabilities. One of the things that's always kind of been difficult is that Things like travel are really expensive. And so for us to kind of come together and have critical conversations about what Black America is going to do with disability and how we're going to like love and care for these families hasn't taken place in large, large stages until recently. And now it's like massive and it's beautiful. And these different organizations have been able to go from local work into like doing national work. And so I'm listening to these advocates, these mothers of children with disabilities kind of talk about what's meaningful to them and and talk about what's meaningful to the communities. I'm watching them teach our community kind of about disability and talking about stigma about disability within our community and kind of trying to understand from there, like, how do we also intervene in this side? And what do we take from this piece to the medical side, to the education side? And how do we blend all of these things together? Because we have to do some real deep listening to Black families before we can also go to the medical school and be like, here's a great solution, right? Like, So I need more time with my families to understand kind of everything that they want and need before, before I head back to the medical side. But I do, I spend a lot of time with clinicians because I also love that piece, right? I think 
Yeah, I love being in the clinic with them. Like they do fabulous work. They do interesting things. They care a lot about families. So I try to make the balance, but right now I'm kind of centered. These families that they're doing this, it's just incredible. If you get the chance to look at it, it's just incredible. The work that's happening during COVID of all times, right? Did you know about 80% of the brain is made up of water? For this reason, water is an essential nutrient the brain depends on to maintain optimal function. When our brains don't receive enough water, many negative effects can result, such as concentration and memory problems, brain fatigue and brain fog, headaches, sleep issues and more. One way my family and I love staying hydrated is by using LMNT electrolytes. LMNT is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. LMNT is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb or paleo diet. LMNT contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I particularly love their chocolate salt and watermelon salt. For a limited time, you can claim a free LMNT sample pack. All you have to do is pay for shipping. To claim the special offer, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. So it's the work in actually observing families and seeing the discussions going taking place. Right, right, right. So because everything moved online, what was in-person research for me also moved online. So some of this has happened, well, actually the great majority over the last year, everything. But the blessing to this is, right, because Zoom became the normative way of, of communication and gathering, I watched like the, the first Black conference on autism take place where this, this mom who's just magical, like she's just incredible, right? She brought to, together all of these Black self-advocates who have autism, Black families who are advocating for she brought together black clinicians who are thinking about autism all into one space to communicate and be with each other and think through these things that are particular to us right it's a, i it's just amazing and in the face of the global pandemic that's disproportionately killing our people in the face of the post-George Floyd world right you have to think about the contextualization for which these families are doing this work i mean it's just She's also homeschooling her kids right now, like the rest of us, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, we need to put that link yeah. in the show notes so people can go and watch that. And I will certainly make a point yes. of watching that yes. because that, yeah. that's the kind of awareness. Because once you've got awareness, that generates yeah. the discussions and the ideas. And it's a massive part of change is the awareness, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, yes. And I just couldn't be more thrilled to see this type of work happening, right? Like, it's it's really important. It's really special to be able to like be a person that gets to sit and watch it. Oh yes, absolutely! Wow, that's incredible. So you still defining that parameters, the asking the questions in your research and your PhD oh, research. You're focusing a lot on the language because you're going to need that for the educational side. Once to get there to the solutions, you know what the problems are that you can that you can fix them. So how where are you at in your research at this point? I'm getting ready to start my field work, hopefully next fall, officially. I've been doing all the preliminary work of asking questions and building relationships with folks and kind of getting to watch these like events take place. And I'm really interested in 
not doing typical research as in viewing the families, but asking the families to work with me to ask questions that are salient to us. What is culturally salient to us and what does it mean to be part of a research project collectively? Like I hope the work that I do is taken up by the families as something that they're proud of, that they feel seen and loved and respected in, right? So we can't just, because I think that's also part of the project of bringing Black families together with the medical crew, right? How do we bring these two entities together is one, learning how to do research that is is honoring this group of people rather than objectified, right? So I'm hoping that that will, I'm hoping that that that's all taking place. Hopefully I will be done with my degree. Well, that's amazing. And you've mentioned about the white ideologies that are dominating autism. So that's really a big factor. And that with your research, you're hoping to change that. You observe, so you're observing that and you are proposing the change. You, that'll lead to the proposed changes. Is that, if I understood it correctly? Yeah, it's as simple as like, we say white ideologies and it doesn't mean inherently bad. I think we've gotten to a place where we say white folks are like meltdown bad. And it's not, it's not. It's just a naming of like kind of where the background is coming from. And you know about autism, you know, like Leo Cap and where the kind of terms came from and who kind of did the work and then who was the first person diagnosed with autism, right? And kind of how it's it's structured is structured along white understanding of what the body and normative behaviors are. And that's not atypical for medicine in general. So the thing is to like, I, I wouldn't argue, right? Like I have a kid with autism. He does all the autism typical behaviors, right? He has behaviors. He has, you know, some things that we could do to help him socially. He's, you know, has all kinds of stuff, right? But also making room for him to be Black and autistic, right? And making room for our family to be a Black autism loving family in ways that are culturally salient, right? Not culturally competent, but culturally salient, right? How do we keep this salient to us so that we can maintain that long-term for our family in, in ways that are meaningful, right? And don't, and don't force our family to like change or assimilate into things that we may not want to do, but rather to acculturate and become with one, you know, with this process. And that's a different ask. And that's a different, like potentially much different outcomes, right? And long-term outcomes. So I know people are like, oh, they're just terms, but these terms mean things. They do mean a lot. They mean a lot. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products. I just placed an order for a ton of pastas, sauces, spices, and oils and cannot wait to get cooking. Public Goods is also a great place to get beautifully packaged gifts for friends and family. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. I worked out an awesome deal just for my listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. 
Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. I've got two questions that I know I can just feel all the parents in, in my audience because we get so many questions about autism asking, okay, one, number one, what would you give us sort of some tips and guidelines for if you have an autistic child and you ha- you're black and you have an autistic child, what are some questions you can ask or guidelines, pointers that you could give us? And then put your mom hat on and tell us maybe a bit about how you manage working mom researching and you know, yeah, so like, yeah, I know those are two loaded questions, but if you can, those will be our two sort of final questions. If you could walk us through those two, that would be amazing. Black families in the U.S. are just particularly attuned to what makes us comfortable, right? We have a long history here of knowing what it feels like to be party to microaggressions and racism and, and blatant racism and systemic racism. And so trust your gut. You know, if you feel like something's not okay, that's okay. Go with that. And there are lots of new emerging, like large organizations like the Color of Autism or Autism in Black that you can reach out to. You can find my email online or, you know, and so there's now some resources for folks to kind of, you know, reach out and say, okay, there's people who are experiencing this like me, right? And, and, and lean into those and, and allow us to like love you and support you through this process. We know it's difficult and that's why so many of us are here doing the work. That's wonderful. We can put that email in the show notes so they can get hold of your, so you'll be, okay. So we will put that in the show notes and people can reach out to you for more specific guidance and maybe peer groups and support groups I and things that they can support groups and whatnot and it, it, because it's on zoom it's so much easier to catch yeah, i know you don't you've got all those oh. other factors removed it can yeah, happen like this yeah it's, it's lovely the other thing is there's a documentary coming out called in a different key that features my research and my family but it also does a beautiful job talking about kind of it, it a forward-thinking intersectional analysis of what it is to be a person with autism or love a person with autism in the U.S. So if you get the watch this particular documentary, it's in various locations at the moment. It's based on the book in a different key. So that's, that's happening as well. If you need like an immediate kind of a way to watch something with autism that you don't, you can, you can explore by yourself without having to encounter anybody else. Really helpful. But the mom question is, that's a lot. Yes. You know, mom of a 16 year old with autism. I have a 10 year old who's a high ability learner and it's a handful. There are, it's a lot. I'm also a doctoral student, right? And that means you work and it's just, it's just a lot. It means you order meal boxes so you can not pick out the recipes and they're usually healthy and the carrots are cut up for you. You know, like you just, I take a lot of shortcuts where I can, you know? Center the kids. I what what is helpful is the kids demand attention, and so you know in the evening I try to just make that them. On the weekends, as much as possible, I try to make that them. You know, and because otherwise, 
I don't know. I'm a professional nerd, right? I'm a PhD student. So I love to like read and I like to do my work. And so I can get really carried away. Really they, that I, I relate totally to that. Yeah. 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 You get like immersed love- in, yeah. So sometimes it is like the kid movie and pizza night and mom's nose in the book while we're all on the couch, but that's, you know, we're all together. <laughs> you, you together. That's the thing. And not to feel guilty about that because you need your, yeah, yeah, your PhD, your work that you're doing is very sad. It's, in, it's, it's strengthening you to be able to be able to reach, meet the needs right. of your children. So that's, right. I think that's where so many moms feel they have to sacrifice themselves to the point where they don't do anything that stimulates them. But that I know for me, being a working mom, doing my PhD when my kids, four kids were young, that kind of thing, it made me a better mother because I was very satisfied in myself. I don't yes. know if that's, if you, I don't know if that's what you're saying, if I'm hearing Absolutely. you say that. So Absolutely. I have to have adult conversation and I need to have conversations that, you know, are stimulating and are academically stimulating. And yeah. And I think being a mother, this is really important and you can do both. I think we're told that we can't or you'll be terrible at one I mean, yeah I you know maybe like the laundry piles up but girl that's a small price to pay to be able to like and also having a little girl who's a high ability learner watch her mom make it through a PhD program you know my little girl just has access she goes to class with me at times at, at UCLA when I teach and when I take class she's in classrooms of brilliant professors and none of this will be news to her when she gets there right like she knows this possibility for her which is part of breaking down disparities is just teaching black kids that this is possible you belong right and and that is for her part of the part of the right so i don't maybe she might be different in 10 years i don't know (laughs) but i think well, I take off my hat to you. I take off my hat to you in so many ways, being a mom with a child with autism, working, doing a PhD. And and I and, and so good that you've immersed yourself in, in the love of your work and that you are contributing to society. And, and you, you've shown that it can be done. It's not easy, but it can be done. And I'm sure oh, you're a lot happier because you are doing this great work, which your child is going to be in. Your child, both your kids are benefiting from in different ways. You know, yeah, and you yeah. and you're laying a groundwork for the future. So I just wanted to, you know, really thank you for the work you're doing, and it's incredible. And thank you for sharing. And you've given us so many because there's a there's a documentary. There's your there's a great blog that you've written. I was reading that; it's phenomenal. There's what what else? What other things? Just in, in oh, closing, how okay. else can people get hold of you? So it's your email. There's um, the documentary. Yes. What else? I have a website that really just is. I mean, it's not very active, but it's alive. Um, and so. Find me via my website, which is stephaniekeeneypark.com. Right now, the documentary is floating around. You can find it at various film festivals. And it's you can look at, in a different key, the movie, and you can see the trailer for that. And that gives you a little bit of context for the work I do. But also, importantly, various ways of, of encountering autism across this nation. It's really quite a beautiful documentary. And then... There's the small blog that I've written. I've written several chapters in the last year who they're all buried in academic books. So I don't know when they will show up on earth, (laughs) which is part of the process of publishing. So, you know, it's a tough go out with that. It is very tough going out there, but I think you've given people a very good place to start. And 
you know, it's the start that people can then reach back out to you. And as people, as the community builds, that's when things start happening. So thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for your time. And it's been an honor meeting you and an honor talking to you. And I'm very inspired and very excited about what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.